0: Our New Testament reading comes from Ephesians chapter 5. We'll be reading starting in verse 22 through the end of the chapter. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. and let the wife see that she respects her husband." In this series on the Ten Commandments we spent three weeks on the fifth commandment uh, because it seemed right that we needed particular help and understanding from the word in the areas of family, home, hierarchy, authority, those sorts of things. And, And if I was being completely consistent, we'd probably have to spend the rest of the year on the Seventh Commandment having to do with chastity and, and sexual immorality. We are not going to do that, but uh, there is clearly a kind of sexual chaos all around us, uh, within us, and I don't know if this will necessarily be encouraging, but this is really how it's always been. This has been true throughout history. We may in a particular way be in kind of a bad place... ...given in our day the breakdown of the family unit... ...the removal of any kind of restraint on sexual desire. But this kind of sin has been present... uh, ...in an area of sin at really all times of the history of God's people. We see this throughout the Old Testament... And the New Testament, this is a topic that the prophets and the apostles have to deal with on a regular basis. This is something that throughout church history, if you read, you know, sermons uh, coming out of the early church, if you read notes from the elder meetings of John Calvin in Geneva, what you'll find is all of the same issues of sexual morality that we deal with today. Why? Why is it that this has always been consistently a major area of sin for us? Because there's something that is essential about who we are, what we are, and where we're heading that is in some way tied to sexuality. It feels very core and personal to us a lot of the time because it actually is, but not in the way that most of us think today. You see, most of us are driven by our our passions and desires, our longings. We've given way to uh, what feels best. We chase after purely sensory, worldly pleasure, thinking it will lead to some kind of fulfillment. Uh, But mere physical pleasure can't lead to fulfillment because that's not the telos, the end goal of sexuality. Those who seek fulfillment through pleasure in this way will every time fail to attain that which they seek. You've no doubt experienced this in one way or another, right? There's always kind of some kind of desire for more. You always long for something else. You're not content. There's something new or different or something that you think must be out there that will actually fill me, that will actually fulfill me. The problem is that very often you're driven by lower or what we might call baser desires rather than those earthly desires directing you toward something that is higher, toward a higher purpose for which they were given. From the beginning of the world, God has made things in such a way that a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. But this has always been directed at something even higher, even greater. Something uh, beyond mere physical enjoyment or pleasure. This mystery it says, is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Sexual union, as God intended, has always been directed at referring us to a higher reality, a deeper reality, something that actually does and can bring complete fulfillment. The kind of fulfillment that so many seek in union with someone else. But you don't get there simply by following your own longings or desires. You first must have this mystery revealed to you. To fully understand God's intent in creation, in marriage, in sex. And that's where we start. Or where we should start when we're trying to contemplate the seventh commandment and God's intent and purpose. The telos of these things. We'll continue ...to speak of that and hold this passage in your mind... ...because we're going to return to it... uh, ...during the time of the sermon. The scripture reading today... uh, ...is really focused around... ...Exodus 20, verse 14. I'm going to read from the beginning... ...of Exodus 20 through that point. I will also be going to... uh, ...Genesis and then also back to... ...Ephesians 5, uh, where we read earlier. So if you want to... ...have those available to follow along... Uh, will be in Genesis 2 and Ephesians 5 as well. But hear the word of the Lord. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not commit adultery. This is God's holy and inspired word for us this morning. You know, it's sometimes sad, or uh, at least The accusation is thrown around, especially about conservative, Bible-believing Christians of whom you could number us here, that we're obsessed with other people's sex lives. But look around you in this world of ours and tell me that we're the ones who are obsessed with this subject. As a culture, we've moved far past the standard of, well, let's just leave people to do what they want behind closed doors. And we've been brought squarely to accept, celebrate any possible sexual deviancy or you are the enemy, right? You are a bigot. But we should expect this, right? This is what people do when they have cut themselves off from God. This is what we do when we've done that. We become a law unto ourselves. Sin has a dehumanizing effect. And it takes you, who were made to be a little bit lower than the angels, and it turns your attention, in a sense, downward, away from heaven, to become more like the beasts of the field. You, who were made for glory, for true freedom, confined to a prison of your passions this is what happens when we cut ourselves off from God this is the progression that we see in Romans chapter one mankind rejects its creator and so it turns inward mankind uh, becomes a kind of black hole turning inward toward himself engaging in increasingly unnatural acts driven by their passions I believe it's uh, Walker Percy who pointed out that in the modern world everybody is so alienated from other people, from nature, from everything that they feel like they are a ghost haunting their own lives. Because of how uh, much we have in a sense accepted a a critical method of everything where we in in a sense doubt Everything and deny everything and criticize everything and we're skeptical of everything. In a world like that, which we live in, how do you convince yourself that you are real? That you matter, that you have some kind of purpose when you've disconnected yourself from God and the world that is singing his praises, every tree branch reaching up to praise him in the heavens, every rain shower bringing his blessings, every thunderstorm declaring his power. That's what's happening all around us all the time. If you deny that, if you have suppressed that reality, that reality that you're a part of, that you're made to be a part of, how do you then convince yourself that you even exist or matter, that you are real and have purpose. Well, one of the ways that people try to do that is through sexual pleasure. It's hard to deny your own reality when you're involved with someone else in this way. But what happens when it's disconnected from ultimate reality? Eventually, you disassociate from this as well. As a ghost of what you're made to be, you will reach out and try to touch someone else and eventually you'll find that you're numbed even to this. Right? In a way, you will pass right through them. You'll pass right through your life. You don't truly live if you're disconnected from life in God. And the reason that sometimes, very often, maybe even most of the time, sexual pleasure can give the sense of some kind of purpose, at least for a time, is because it does play an extremely important role... in directing us toward what we were truly made for. But the reason that it never brings total fulfillment... at least not that you often think it might... is because its purpose is beyond itself. It's greater than itself. Sexuality disconnected from its covenantal end becomes inevitably degrading passions. That's where it it goes apart from the grace of God. But if you will accept and understand its proper context, in, in the covenantal framework for which God has made it, then it can direct you toward those higher and greater things when you understand and receive sex as a good gift of God within the covenant he has established, then you see that it's about so much more than simply some kind of physical connection with someone else or emotional connection with someone else. It's so much deeper. So that's what we're going to dig into in an attempt to better understand the full framework of what it would then mean to break that covenantal system. And the first thing we can say about the covenantal structure of sexuality is that it is about union, not about you. And union is not spelled Y-O-U-N-I-N. Union is something that happens between you and another. Your sexual desires are supposed to direct you outward, not inward. When we begin, at least in the modern world, to talk about sex or marriage or related topics, we often start with, well, what do you desire? Right? What's, what is it when you look inside? What are the things that you want to experience? What, what are the things that, that you are attracted to? What, what are you like? What kind of things do you want to engage in? But when we start with simply that when that becomes the basis from which we build everything else, we've already missed the boat. We've already missed everything because it's not ultimately about you. Yes, this is a subject that feels deeply personal because it does have to do with things that are close to your heart. The Apostle Paul says that all other sins other than sexual morality are committed outside of the body, but this is a sin against your own body. It's deeply personal, it is deeply spiritual, but it's not primarily about you. You are not the foundation of how we should understand it. In the same way that we have often made spirituality mainly an internal, personal, subjective matter, So, we have done the same with sexuality. We've made it an internal, personal, subjective matter. And these two topics are deeply intertwined. But sexuality is made by God to be uh, primarily covenantal. And so, it is about union with another. And about directing you toward an even higher and greater union. We read in Genesis chapter 2... Genesis 2, verse starting in verse 18. And I'm going to read uh, through the end of the chapter. But we read this. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whenever the man called, every living creature, that was its name. "...and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman... ...because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother... ...and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked... ...and were not ashamed." We are not Gnostics. We are not to be ascetics. We don't believe that the physical world is simply bad or or gross. That sex is purely base or unnatural. That uh, the ideal for us would be single, disconnected, isolated, personal, uh, spiritual people focused on our internal lives. No, from the very beginning at the very first Before sin ever entered into the world, there was a man, there was a woman, there was romance, there was marriage, there was sex, and the possibility of procreation. These are all good things, gifts from God. This was always God's intention for mankind. This was always how he was going to fill the world with those who were made in his image and would take dominion of all of creation. That was always the plan. In our response then to sexual sin and sexual chaos, may the Lord keep us from rejecting his good design, the good things. But the orientation from the beginning was directed outward. Man looks out from himself to another, one that is like him and from him and yet different ...than him at the same time. We see God officiating the first wedding... ...walking the bride down the aisle... ...walking her to the man... ...bringing her to the man... ...bringing the first woman... ...and the first man that they would be united... two united as one... ...directed toward each other... ...becoming one flesh. And it says that even now... ...therefore, because of that original intention even now still a man will leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Within then this covenantal framework in which God has created sexual union you have two different beings brought together to be united in purpose fulfilling God's command and mission for them and to be united in pleasure, a united love and enjoyment of one another. This kind of covenantal union we also see is fruitful. They're united in purpose and pleasure and also procreation. They make something together. Children come from this union. This one flesh union results in one that is connected to both of these two. This is the the fruit of it. They create something. It's not a personal purpose that each of them is engaged in and supporting each other in. It's a singular purpose that God has brought them together for. It's not personal pleasure. It's united pleasure. It's companionship. It's united purpose. Sex is something that has always been meant to be private in a certain way, that's why even throughout scripture sex is usually spoken of in euphemism, it uses poetry to describe what's going on, there's a kind of covering or veil over it, it's sacred, it's set apart, it's not spoken of in a purely crass or direct way and when scripture does speak that way, because sometimes it does right? there are passages of scripture that I could read right now and all of us would be uncomfortable. Right? If we were to go and read Ezekiel 16, all of us would feel strange. We would probably think, are we even supposed to say these things in church? But it's God's word. Right? But, but when uh, what we would call kind of crass or direct language is used about sexuality, it's almost always, as far as I can tell, it's almost always used when speaking of sinful sexual morality or when it's used to speak about uh, spiritual realities of idolatry. Right, the kind of spiritual adultery that that people fall into in idolatry. And in those circumstances, Scripture uses blunt, direct, what we might call, again, crass language to describe it. But when it's spoken of within, the the covenantal framework, the, the purpose of these things, the good of these things, there's almost always a kind of euphemism and poetry that's used. It's not spoken of in that same direct way. So sex is, it's private in scripture. There's a veil and a covering. But just because it's private doesn't mean that it's about you. It's not just personal from the beginning it has been about bringing two people together, about uniting that which is different, about fulfilling the universal dominion mandate of God and about the production of offspring. And and sex is actually always in a certain way a public matter, not the act itself which should always be veiled again and covered, but it is a public matter in that it involves Bringing of different families together, bringing up the next generation, the building of culture in society. And we are so backwards very often in our day that we we twist that and we get it exactly opposite. Right? So we make the act public and we proliferate pornography and all kinds of shameful public spectacles. But then when we talk about the meaning and the purpose and the definition of these things, we say, well that's down to your personal desire. Right? Personal inclination, personal consent. That's all that matters when we're defining these things. Despite everything that you have been regularly indoctrinated with all around you, sexuality is not first and foremost about you. It is not fundamentally or essentially about you. You matter, of course, but you don't determine and dictate what God has created he does he determines its purpose and what it's for even after sin is entered into the world this original intention continues though it's been distorted by sin though sin is entered in the seventh commandment is given in part to direct us back to that original intention we're told throughout the Scripture of this intention. Malachi speaks of the continued plan of God to bring godly offspring into the world through marriage. We're told even in the, the New Testament, Paul tells us that you know, there, there is an element of companionship, of, of working together toward Christ-likeness that marriage allows. Right? Now, uh, there's sin that has entered in, so he says part of marriage is now helping to keep us from temptation, but that's still directed toward Christ's likeness It's directed toward God's original intention. So we can build on this, though. So we can add to the fact that covenantal sexuality is not primarily about you and say that it's also not built on pleasure but on promise. It's built upon promises, not simply pleasure. And don't misunderstand that. God has in part made sex to be pleasurable. And increasingly so as it's used properly according to his commands within that covenantal framework that he's given it in. But pleasure is not the primary thing that, that directs it, that teaches us of its ultimate purpose. Pleasure can be an important motivation in your life, But pleasure, given your fallen nature, cannot be what directs you. It takes higher things to direct us, the the things of the mind, the things of the spirit. If you're primarily directed by your bodily urges, by your passions, by desiring some kind of, uh, you know, physical or emotional pleasure, then you're always going to end up in trouble. Right, because these things can motivate, but not actually direct us. Marriage then can't be built purely around pleasure, or it all falls apart. This is assumed when, when God gives the curse on the woman in Genesis 3. That for now on, the relationship between men and women will not be All romance and all excitement and all pleasure. It's it's not going to always feel fulfilling or satisfying of those longings that we sometimes think it might. Right, God said your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. There is now this this conflict that can be involved because of sin. And many marriages and relationships have shipwrecked on the, the rocky outcove of pleasure seeking it's not because pleasure itself is always wrong or that you should always be ashamed of enjoying those things that God has made to be pleasurable it's to say that we live in a fallen world that you have sinful desires that there are going to be times that you find sin pleasurable and alluring temptation wouldn't be temptation if you never desired it if you never enjoyed it in a certain way. It may not be the fullest kind of joy, but there are times when you will find sin to be exciting and enjoyable. There are going to be times when you find righteousness to be something that you don't care for at all, that you don't want to do, that's difficult. You cannot then build your sexuality around purely the pursuit of of pleasure or enjoyment covenantal sexuality from the beginning has been built around the idea of promise, not just pleasure. The man cleaves to his wife and they become one flesh. God brings two together and unites them with a portion of his his spirit based around the promise of faithfulness, the promise of service, the promise of the duties which we owe one another, the promise of seeking after the Lord together. It's built then around vows, around promise. This is really simply another way of saying it's built around the idea of covenant, relationship with another built on promise. Finally, we can say that sexuality was made by God to be covenantal because it points to a deeper covenantal reality than simply this earthly life. That's not to say that marriage and the bonds that we form in marriage aren't real or that they don't matter. In fact, they are more real and more important than you might recognize sometimes. But the the meaning of it all the fact that it is real comes from the fact that it's not merely based around worldly custom. God designed this and intended it to be something that points us to a higher spiritual reality. This momentary marriage of yours, these desires that God has given you for union with another, it ultimately points to the reality Of Christ's covenantal love for his church and the union between God and his people. That's where it all is directed. We see this in Ephesians 5, as we've already read. Paul quotes Genesis 2, right, from before the fall. And he says this, he, he quotes that, and then he explains a bit more. This is in Ephesians 5, verse 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband this covenant of marriage in which sexuality was made to be engaged in it is called a profound mystery not because it can't be understood right paul tells us in 1 corinthians 4 that the apostles were the stewards of the mysteries of god right how can you steward something that you don't know or or understand or get No, You can know what this mystery is all about. You can know what the mystery is speaking about and referring to. But it wasn't fully known, it wasn't fully revealed until Christ came. Until it's been revealed in him. This is what it was all about the whole time. Marriage and covenantal sexuality is made to be a representation of A picture of the gospel. Of the love of Christ for his people. That he would lay down his life for them. For his bride. That he would die for them. His side is opened on the cross. That he might be united to another that is created from him. This is just like Adam and Eve. A bride brought from his side. And he works then to sanctify his bride, we're told in Ephesians 5, that he might wash her in the Word, sanctifying her, that he might present her uh, in splendor, right, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. This is what Christ does. And marriage and covenant sexuality is a picture of the church then responding to that, his bride submitting to him and following him as he leads. It's an earthly picture of the deep intimacy between God and his people. Of the union that God's people have with him. In Christ, you are united to God. Why is sexuality and spirituality so often intertwined? Right? Why is it that when you look at any kind of pagan religion from before the time of Christ or those which lasted for some time but not long after the time of Christ, they almost always involved some kind of sexual practice, right? Temple prostitutes that we read about in Scripture, ancient fertility cults, or even think about today when various cults form, how often they turn sexual in some way if they don't begin that way from the start. Why do these things so often correspond? Why does even scripture use sexual union and marriage and even elicit sexuality as an analogy of spiritual life? Because sex and marriage are inherently spiritual. Because they direct us toward higher things. The problem that you face in in understanding God's design for sexuality is not in uh, simply desiring pleasure too much. It's that you often settle for a partial pleasure. A pleasure of the body, not of the soul. A pleasure of this world, not one of the next as well. A pleasure that only lasts for a short while. ...instead of the lasting pleasure that it's intended to direct you toward. So when you don't understand the covenantal intention of sexuality... ...how it ultimately should be directing you toward those higher realities... ...the reality of the gospel in Christ... ...directing you toward understanding Christ himself... ...then you may experience some earthly good... But that's it. That's where it stops. But I think you know that uh, there is something deeper. There's something more meaningful than simply physical stimulation. You know that there's more to life and happiness and relationships and marriage. It is inherently spiritual because it refers to deeper spiritual realities in Christ. And because of that, even if you, as an individual, never have sex and you never get married, you can still be fully engaged in that deeper reality. We live in a time when, uh, you know, singleness, especially in the later years of life, is is incre- it's becoming more normal, right? This is something that's always been. Um, God does plan for some people to be single, but it's always been, a, you know, a small percentage of the population but uh, that's just growing in the modern world more and more and so sometimes you know it's it's said of Jesus Christ well look at him he was single his whole life and the intention there is well we want everybody to know that they can fully engage in the spiritual life just like just like Christ and there's a kind of truth there but the reality is that Jesus Christ came in order that he might win a bride. He came in order that he might take to himself a bride. That was his intention. He left his father that he might be united to another. That he might be united to a bride. Now again, hopefully you see that it doesn't matter your stage in life. It doesn't matter if God uh, puts you in a position where you're never married. You never uh, take part in the blessing of marriage. Uh, that's, That's something that God does in this life. And you can still have a... A full, uh, complete spiritual life apart from that because of the reality that all of this is pointing to Christ himself and what he has done. So I know it might seem again like maybe we haven't really touched on the commandment. We haven't really touched on the seventh commandment. And it says in the bulletin, that's the text, we read it. But we really are talking about it. Right, this is all necessary. Dealing with uh, sexual sin or chastity as the seventh commandment does can only be done properly for us if we have that, the, the covenantal framework in which those words are being spoken. If we have the telos of sexuality. When we understand it properly, what it is, what it's for, why God created it this way, how we are to engage in it, Human sexuality is not just a personal thing that we get to dictate. Human sexuality should always be biblical sexuality, and biblical sexuality is covenantal sexuality. It is directed toward union with another, directing you outside of yourself. It's built on promise, not momentary pleasure, and it refers you to Christ and his love of the church. And that doesn't make this topic Uh, Less important, right? That doesn't take away the importance and the goodness of marriage or sex or something like that. It actually adds to its importance. It adds importance that we may not otherwise give it. We may treat these things casually when God doesn't. When God tells you not to commit adultery or on the positive side to be chaste in heart, in mind, in action... To direct the desires that you have according to the covenantal love in marriage that he has designed. He is helping to guide you toward what is ultimately greater joy, not less joy. Right? He's directing you toward a greater pleasure, not less pleasure. He's directing you toward greater glory, not less. We mentioned earlier, and I'll just close with this. We mentioned earlier that even in the Lord's Supper we have this image of a wedding supper of a, of a celebration at a wedding that looks forward to the day when Christ will return when this, this wedding will uh, take place in its fullest form. And we read about this in Revelation 21. And I'll just close with reading this for us. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Let's pray. Lord God, would you teach us your will. Would you give us the mind of Christ on these things. That where we are fallen where we are hard-pressed by uh, the sexual chaos all around us, where we have inordinate desires and passions that don't align with you and your intent in creation, that you would guide us by your word and make us more like Christ, who we look to even as we think on these things.